Welcome everyone to episode 97 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Jamie DeWitt. She is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology of the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University and an adjunct associate professor in the toxicology program of the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University. Her laboratory's research program explores relationships between biological organism, organisms and their responses after exposure to environmental contaminants with a special focus on the immune system and its interactions with the nervous system during development and adulthood. A particular focus of this research program is on emerging aquatic contaminants, especially per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, otherwise known as PFAS. And that's really the reason we brought her on the show today, is to kind of do a PFAS 101. Um, she just was on our NFPA task group the other week, and just did a great job there, and I wanted to give everybody the opportunity to listen and kind of get a background on really what these chemicals are and what they do. So without further ado, let's bring in the good doctor. Here's Dr. Jamie DeWitt. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. DeWitt. How are you? Doing pretty good for a Monday. How about you? It is Monday, but uh, it's it's a good Monday. I Because I'm done with work now for a little bit, like nine shifts. I'm envious. I'm, I might try to grow this amazing beard that I had before back out. <laughs> hey, you know, facial hair is, is hip and in style, right? Yes, because that is clearly me. Yes, everybody <laughs> knows me. Hip, hip. Now, so let's just, we'll jump right into it. What exactly is a toxicologist? Well, the old, old school definition of toxicologist is somebody who studies poisons, but really that uh, definition is much broader today because poisons are generally things that are produced by living organisms, such as toxins from a toad or from poison ivy or snake venom, for example. Uh, I'm a toxicologist who studies human-made compounds or synthetic compounds. We call them toxicants. And I look at what these agents do to the immune system. Uh, during adulthood and during development. So one of the endpoints I study is the vaccine response. And I look at how environmental contaminants, such as industrial pollutants, impact the body's ability to make antibodies to a vaccine, for example. Very nice, very nice. So another kind of definition question, uh, what exactly is a PFAS? Well, a PFAS is just one of nearly 10,000 individual compounds that are called per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. So PFAS is an acronym for a class of many different compounds. There's been argument over the exact definition. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, just actually released a new definition for PFAS that has made some people uncomfortable because it broadens the definition. So there should be an addition to the number of compounds that we would classify as PFAS. Basically, a, a PFAS is a chain of carbons and carbons usually have hydrogen stuck to them. In the case of PFAS, the hydrogens have been removed and replaced with fluorine. And many different PFAS exist, 
because they have different numbers of carbons and fluorines. And then they also have different functional groups attached to them. So many may be familiar with PFOA or perfluorooctanoic acid or PFOS or perfluorooctane sulfonic acid. They both have eight carbons. They both have the same number of fluorines. PFOA has a functional group that's known as a carboxylic acid, whereas PFOS has a functional group that's known as a sulfonic acid. And there can be other forms of functional groups attached to PFAS. Some PFAS might even have an oxygen in between the carbons, and these are known as perfluoroether acids if they have a carboxylic or a sulfonic acid attached to them. Gen X, for example, which has been found here in North Carolina, is a perfluoroether carboxylic acid. I am not a chemist, so it's been very challenging me, challenging for me to learn some of the chemical language associated with PFAS. So then very generally, PFAS have these properties that make them special and make them really desirable for a lot of processes and products. The bond between carbon and fluorine is really strong. And, and I've heard that people call it the strongest bond in chemistry, which means that PFAS are really challenging to break down. They don't degrade naturally very easily. They are very durable and very stable, which is why they're used in a lot of different products and processes. They can impart uh, stain resistance, water resistance, grease repellency, and they can be used as surfactants. So they help to mix other compounds into a solution. And as you know, they're also used in aqueous film forming foams for fire suppression activities. Uh, one of my colleagues put together uh, a list of all of the different categories in which PFAS have been used. And the list is, about 60 different categories long. So imagine all of the different products in those different categories. Uh, climbing rope, bicycle chain lubricants, dental floss, cosmetics, film forming foams, and then you get into some of the more industrial applications. They're, they're used in many different products and processes, but many of those uses really may not be essential. And we can talk about a definition for essential if you would like, but that in a nutshell. I had really that on my list nutshell. actually. Great, so, so that, that's, that's PFAS. There are many different compounds and they're used because of the durability and the chemical properties that are desirable for various processes and products. All right, now you kind of mentioned already the essential non-essential part. I know um, it's been highly debated regarding a lot of this NFPA stuff and our fire gear on is this essential or not essential, these chemicals in our fire gear. So how does, how does that, how do we define that? So I worked with some colleagues from the Global PFAS Science Panel to put together a concept for essential use for PFAS. And, and the study was, was lead authored by Professor Ian Cousins. He's a professor at uh, Stockholm University and knows a lot about PFAS. The essential use concept definition for PFAS was actually taken from the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol was a document that helped to phase out chlorofluorocarbons or ozone depleting substances. And the basic definition of essentiality under our paradigm or under, under our set of, of guidelines was that essential means necessary for the health 
safety or functioning of society and for which no safe alternatives are available. So essential doesn't mean great, wonderful use, use forever. It means it, it imparts some sort of a necessary function and we don't have any substitutes for it right now. So something that would be non-essential um, in terms of a use for PFAS would be bicycle chain lubricants. Do PFAS make bike chain lubricants work better? We've heard from the industry, no, they just help to sell the product. Um, I don't think profitability is uh, necessary for the health functioning or safety of society. So in that case, the PFAS in the bicycle chain lubricant would not be essential. Turnout gear for firefighters has PFAS in it. And at this time, some have called that an essential use of the PFAS. I think the question is, are there alternatives that have less hazard potential than PFAS that could be used and that could impart the same um, set of uh, attributes that PFAS give to that turnout gear? And I think individual cases need to be defined by decision makers, really not scientists. We've made some recommendations, but decision makers are the ones who have to actually come up to the come up with the criteria for what is essential and what is not essential. And then the question is, is it the chemical or is it the product? And that really gets into areas that that um, that are very confusing socially. I mean, is a Game Boy essential? I bet you a 13 year old kid, well, probably 30 years ago would say yes. I don't know what video games would be considered by a 13 year old kid today. I'd still say as a 42 year old, that is essential. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, my husband uh, would agree, and, and I think he uses a, a, a an Xbox. Yes, I don't. I don't play video games. I'm boring. It's okay. We won't judge you. <laughs> nice. So uh, this, these same people that I've had to listen to talk about how there's there's good PFAS, there's safe PFAS. Is there, in your opinion, such a thing? Yeah, you know, there are safe PFAS and those are the PFAS that don't get into the environment and don't get into our bodies or don't get into the bodies of living organisms. So far, I've yet to see a PFAS that hasn't made it out into the environment, into the bodies of living organisms and into the bodies of people. And we certainly haven't measured for all 10,000 of them, but these are synthetic compounds that were designed by people. They were not designed as individual chemicals to go into our bodies. Now, there are some that are used in medical devices and we have no evidence to date that the PFAS in medical devices can leach out of those devices and move throughout somebody's body. I don't know if anybody's really looked. So I don't know if this is a situation where we just don't have any evidence or we have evidence to the contrary. Um, but as far as I know, when PFAS are used to produce devices and other products, those PFAS can escape into the environment. Sometimes they're allowably released, sometimes they're accidentally released, sometimes they're illegally released. And once a PFAS gets out into the environment, then there's the potential for widespread exposure because they're going to persist in the environment. They can travel and many of them can bioaccumulate or get taken up by living organisms from the environment. So. There, there, there really are no safe PFAS if you define them the way that I've defined them. 
Okay. How there's a bunch of questions that just came from that. So bear with me here. First of all, um, how are we being exposed to these? How are we taking this stuff into our body? Well, a lot of that depends on where you live and where you work. So we have some studies to suggest that people who live in areas where PFAS has contaminated drinking water, their major source of exposure to PFAS will be from their drinking water. And there are very few technologies that can completely eliminate PFAS from drinking water. And you can't apply a technology, you can't zap water like you can um, with UV light or ozone to break down bacterial cell walls and kill bacteria and other pathogens. You can't do that to PFAS because UV light or ozone isn't gonna break down a PFAS. Right now, the only way we have for eliminating PFAS from drinking water is filtration. So we filter them out. Well, what do you do with the filtrate then? What do you do with the collected PFAS that you filter out? That's another problem. So that PFAS has to go somewhere. It, can be landfilled or incinerated, but it just shifts the problem to another location. So drinking water is a major source of exposure for many people here in the United States, especially those who live near known sites of water contamination. If you are lucky enough not to live in an area with contaminated water, then the second most likely way you're exposed is through your food. And it can be from food packaging or potentially from food that's grown with amendments that may contain PFAS. So after you flush the toilet, if you live in uh, an area with municipal wastewater treatment, that, that sewage goes to a treatment facility. And sometimes those treatment facilities receive wastewaters from industry. That gets mixed into the sewage from households, and that eventually becomes a biosolid, which is uh, you know, sewage where the pathogenic materials have been degraded. That then becomes fertilizer that can get applied to fields. Well, water treatment facilities weren't really ever designed to break down chemicals. They were designed to make sure that we didn't ingest cholera or some sort of other pathogenic bacteria or virus. So biosolids may contain a lot of different chemicals, and we know that that is one way that PFAS contaminates soil and then can, can, can contaminate food or other, other crops that might get fed to cows or steer. Um, so food packaging and then food grown in PFAS contaminated soil can, can be ways that people get exposed. We also know that there can be PFAS in household dust so if you have all sorts of nonstick coatings, you know, carpeting with, with stain resistant coating, furniture with stain res resistant coating, all sorts of gear with stain resistant coating or water repellent coating, over time, some of those PFAS coatings will degrade and become part of the environmental dust in the home. And you can get exposed through inhalation. We're still developing a lot of information on those inhalation pathways. And then if you're working in uh, an industry that uses or makes PFAS, that will be a major source of your exposure. You can get exposed dermally or through inhalation or even a small amount of ingestion if you accidentally touch your mouth while you have contamination on your hands. You know, that's why we don't eat or drink in the laboratory. Um, so really we can get exposed 
through all roots, inhalation, ingestion, and dermal. And there are many pathways by which we can get exposed, drinking water, food, and occupational settings. This is toxicology 101. And we teach these pathways and exposure routes to students on their very first day of class. Does that mean I get college credit hours for this? Um, I don't know. I'll give you somebody who you can talk to here at the university. All right, there you go. <laughs> All right. So you also mentioned uh, bile accumulation. Can you kind of talk about this? Because this is just something that I think the normal person has no idea about whatsoever. Yeah, so bioaccumulation is a process by which a chemical, for example, that's in the environment can get taken up by living organisms. And think about a fish, a fish swimming around in water that has PFAS floating around in it. That fish will be completely immersed in PFAS. They can absorb some of the PFAS through their, their fish skin. They might even take some of the PFAS up through their gills as they filter the water for oxygen exchange. Um, similarly, then if that fish has PFAS in it, if a bear, and I, I don't know why I'm thinking of a bear, I was thinking of polar bear, but here in Eastern North Carolina, we have lots of black bear. If a bear eats a fish that's contaminated with PFAS, they can then take that PFAS into their body. Um, so it's a process by which chemicals in the environment can move into the bodies of living organisms. And bioaccumulation differs from biomagnification. So biomagnification occurs when concentrations of chemicals build up in the food chain. So something like a shark that's a peak predator would have higher concentrations than uh, a phytoplankton, which is a, you know, the very first start of the food chain. Um, some PFAS biomagnify because they have very long biological half-lives. And that means that it takes a very long time for an initial amount ingested or absorbed to get excreted. For example, PFOA can take maybe two to four years to get eliminated and that's half-life. So that's two to four years to eliminate half of a single exposure. If you're getting exposed day after day after day, then concentrations can build up. And we refer to that as a process of biomagnification. There are much smarter people than me who study accumulation and magnification. There's lots of math involved in it. It's, in my opinion, somewhat complicated. There'll probably be no point in my life that, I mean, I'll always have a good amount of this stuff. Just assuming from the my turnout gear, the little bit of foam I used, and just constantly putting it on. I mean, even when I'm done, it's still going to take decades for the stuff to get out of my system. Very likely. And that's also with the assumption that you're not getting exposed to anymore. So you're likely getting exposed day by day to incremental amounts of PFAS from these other sources that I mentioned, from your food or from the air in your home, depending on what materials you have in your home. So you'll take in a little bit every day. And this is one of the concerns that we as toxicologists have is this persistence. Because PFAS don't break down, exposure will be consistent as long as there are PFAS in the environment. And because they take so long to get eliminated, your, your body carries around PFAS for many years 
And the more a chemical hangs around in your body, the greater the likelihood it can interact with molecules in your body. And at some point at the right concentration, those molecules of PFAS interacting with molecules in your body may send the wrong signal at the wrong time. And that's when disease can occur. So it's a matter of not only just concentration, but duration or the amount of time that you're exposed as well. It's all, it's all great news, right? Yeah. Um, so there, there have been some, um, suggestions as to how you can eliminate PFAS from your body, obviously stop your exposure, no longer let yourself get exposed because you know, you have complete control over that. And I'm hoping that my sarcasm conveys, um, give blood often you can, you can give blood and that will help to reduce PFAS concentrations in your body. But then if you donate that blood, you're passing that blood along to somebody else who may then receive your PFAS exposure. Um, you could start menstruating. Uh, women tend to have lower body burdens than men. And we think that it has to do with menstruation. Um, so if you're postmenopausal, then your concentrations may increase because you're no longer shedding blood every month. There are some folks looking at some drugs that may help to speed up the rate at which PFAS are eliminated from your body or a body. But to my knowledge, none of those have been um, really examined enough to make it up to a clinical trial where they actually start running it in people. Um, you hear anecdotal comments here and then about certain drugs that might speed up the elimination of PFAS. But remember, and you know, now we're getting back into the bathroom story again, when you uh, eliminate, you know, let's say when you, when you urinate, if you have PFAS in your urine, that urine will go to either a water treatment facility or to a septic tank, and the PFAS in that urine will then make it out into the environment. So it's just this never ending cycle of, of PFAS throughout the system because they don't readily degrade naturally. So happy Monday to you. We'll have a great week after this, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just, it has to be even coming from where, you know, what you do. I mean, that's just disheartening. You're, you're fighting a battle that you may never, ever, not in your lifetime win. Yeah. It, it's something that I think about a lot as I, and, you know, we're getting a little existential here, but, or philosophical, I think about that a lot in terms of what mark can I leave on the world when I'm gone? Um, I listened to an interview or a podcast with uh, um, one of the men that helped to develop the mumps vaccine. He, I think he helped to develop maybe 14 or more of the vaccines that are given routinely to children. And and the interviewer said, you know, you've done this great thing for humankind. What, what do you think about that? And he said, well, you know, I may have done a few good things, but I have to ask myself, is the world going to be better off when I'm gone? And I'm nowhere like, you know, I'm not trying to compare myself to the scientists who developed vaccines that have helped to eliminate diseases on our planet. But, but I think a lot about what I can do to make the world a better place. And that's why I'm a toxicologist, 
And that's why I'm a toxicologist um, for an academic institution so that I can, I can be the voice of those who are not making the chemicals. I can, I can be the, but what if voice? What if, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And I, I feel like it's part of my job to raise questions about whether or not we should be using chemicals at all that are persistent. Um, it's not really part of a sustainable world to make chemicals that don't ever break down and that do have hazard potential. With, with these, all these different chemicals, and you mentioned before, there's 10,000 different variations at this point and, and probably growing. You know, it seems like the attitude that I hear is that, you know, we know that, that you know, C8 is bad for us, but all these other, these 9,999 other variations, they haven't been proven you know, to be unsafe. So let's just keep using them. And is it a matter of, I mean, they almost take the attitude of they're innocent until proven guilty instead of they're all related. They're all closely related. We should know that they're all bad for us and they have to prove that they're actually are good for us instead. I mean, it seems backwards just from, I mean, just, uh, you know, common sense point of view. Well, was common sense always the reason behind some of the laws that we have in our country um, to protect human and environmental health from potentially hazardous substances? I mean, the reality is, is that the voice of those who make these compounds help to develop many of the laws that we have. So if you go back and look at environmental history and look at the history of many of the laws that we have, they were created with consultation from those who were going to be regulated, which, as you said, doesn't sound very commonsensical. And yeah, I, I agree. The way that we evaluate safety of substances, it, it's, it's backwards. And, and somebody like me who works for an academic institution is always going to be playing catch up. Um, I rely on environmental chemists to tell me what they're finding in the environment, and then I evaluate the toxicity and try to educate a decision maker so that they can make decisions that can be both economically protective as well as environmentally and, and public health protective. Um, but why do we have to wait for something to become an environmental catastrophe before we actually do something about it? Even, I mean, I, I don't wanna to go too far down a tangent, even trying to get funding to study environmental chemicals can be challenging unless you demonstrate that there's a reason to study them. So you already have to show that there are some adverse health outcomes or an environmental problem before you can even get funding to study them even further. So our, our system maybe is not designed on principles of precaution, but principles of reaction. No, that makes sense. Uh, and it's disheartening as well. Um, some of the other comments that, you know, working on this whole NFPA stuff, um, you know, the, the kind of the catchphrases that I kept hearing over and over are the unattended consequences, the, the regrettable substitutions. I mean, it's, I guess you don't, there's the fear of the unknown, but we know what we have now is already 
you know, killing us. So I, I just don't know. I mean, I guess that's more of a statement really than a question to you. <laughs> but, you know, part of this is trying to just uh, talk about that whole TIA that is, is going on and the whole public comment is still open until August 4th. So this, I'll do a little plug in here to, to do that. You know, this is our opportunity to try to get at least started on getting rid of these chemicals in our gear, um, having an alternative. Cause right now these manufacturers have no incentive to try to find an alternative because they're stuck within the standard of having this UV light test that has to have these PFAS chemicals. So by just removing that test, it will still have gear that has this for the, for the time being, but it will at least be able to work on safe alternatives that we can go to in the near future. It seems like the manufacturers just want to kick things down the road and we need to do more studies. We need to do more research. We need to just, just pass it on and it'll go on and it'll never end just like everything else we've talked about. So uh, the plug here is go to PFASFreePPE.com. That'll give you all the information you need. And that is where you can go and actually leave a public comment. And once again, they close August 4th. And that is going to be our best chance to prove to the NFPA Standard Council that we need an alternative. We need to get rid of this. We need to start the process and not just keep kicking the can down the road. Well, and, you know, innovation can improve with economic incentives. Uh, innovation occurs if there's a, an economic benefit from doing so. Uh, in this particular area, I don't know what the economic benefit would be, um, but there has to be. So, for example, if we if we talk about consumer goods, consumers can say, you know what, we don't want PFAS in our nonstick pans. We want an alternative that is safe. And now there's been an explosion of companies making nonstick coatings that are supposedly PFAS free. I don't know if that's been tested. I don't. There are no, I think, uh, industry standards for PFAS free nonstick coatings. Um, but innovation arises from a market need. And so what is the market for PPE and who controls that and who makes those decisions about what will be purchased from where? I mean, the firefighters are still going to have to get fire gear. We're not going to fight fire without it. So it's really who makes end up making profit is the chemical companies. I mean, that's, that's where it comes down to. So they have incentive to keep doing what they're doing because they already have it all set up and they don't want to spend all the money doing the research and development on coming up with an alternative. They are absolutely choosing profit over our health. Yeah. You know, my job as a scientist I've been told is not to concern myself with the economic ramifications of the outcomes of the, the science that I conduct in my lab. But I'm also a consumer. I also live in this world. I also you know, have friends and family that I care about who I don't want to get exposed. So I think at some level, we do need to think a little bit about the economic implications. Um, and some of my colleagues have actually just recently written a, a paper on the cost of inaction with respect to not phasing out PFAS and how expensive it will be 
for our society to have these chemicals continue to exist in the environment and in our bodies. You know, the, the paper talks about healthcare costs and, and other types of costs. Um, and, and I think back to 2017, when I read an article about one of the, the floral manufacturing companies being awarded for record profits in spite of hardships that they had endured. So, and that's profits, record profits. That's over and above operating costs, unless my basic economic um, understanding is faulty there. Yeah, I think I've said it already too much. It's just disheartening, this whole thing, but. Well, I mean, yes, to a degree, but, and, and this is gonna, this might sound a little bit corny, I think one of the amazing things about studying PFAS is that I've met people like you. I've met other scientists who are passionate about getting to the bottom of the PFAS problem. I've met people from all over the world who are dedicating time and energy to understanding PFAS and educating decision makers so that decision makers get a range of information and not just information from a single source. So the, the positive is that we understand that something needs to happen at a global level, at a national level, at a state level, and we're working hard to ensure that information is shared across many different individuals so that there's just not a single source of information, for example, from a lobbying company that, or a lobbying source that has lots of money. So. That's the positive aspect of it. And, and changes are taking place. I mean, there's, there's the, the PFAS Action Act that, that was put forward in the House. And that was, I think, passed. Well, you were recently. passed out of the House, yes. Right, uh, right. You, you, were, you testified for that, right? So I test, I've testified before several House subcommittees, um, but none specifically for the PFAS Action Act. Okay. I like to think that some of my testimony helped to influence decision makers to either write it or vote for it, but I probably very much overestimate my own influence. No, I don't think you should. Uh, you know, even just doing this right now is, is beneficial you know, to all of us firefighters that, you know, we shouldn't have to worry about this. Our, our gear is supposed to protect us and shouldn't be harming us. Um, shouldn't even be concerned. We're exposed to enough stuff. So, um, you know, that's kind of my mission is just to reduce our exposures as much as possible. And that means trying to find an alternative to this. So, you know, with that, I know you have other meetings to get to, but I really did want to appreciate you for just jumping on and doing this kind of PFAS 101 class with us and uh, just educating us. Because um, I've had all sorts of people that talk about this, but nobody that has had the background uh, like you to really just break it down and simplify it. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, as a, as a university faculty, part of my job is education. I work very hard to educate myself because PFAS are complex and hopefully I've simplified it to the point where it's a little 
more understandable, but I don't ever want to oversimplify anything. Um, my, you know, my goal is to educate. No, and you did, you did great. Again, this is, we're not supposed to be worried about this stuff. We should just be worried about, you know, whatever new EMS stuff is coming out or, or, you know, fire prevention or just, you know, techniques and, and training regarding helping citizens. We shouldn't have to worry about our own safety regarding our PPE. Exactly. It's the same thing when you go to your faucet to get a glass of water, you want to know that the water you're receiving from your public utility is the highest quality that they can achieve through whatever technology they have available to them. And you hope that there aren't industrial chemicals in your water. Unfortunately, the vast majority of water systems do have industrial contaminants in them, but hopefully we will develop technologies to filter them out, break them down, or prevent them from getting into the environment to the first place. And I don't want to disregard uh, the, the exposures that the typical human being have to this. I mean, that's significant. I mean, my eight-year-old and five-year-old are growing up in this world. I mean, I guess my, my concern in this push is um, just for firefighters having the additional exposures with our gear, with our foam. It seems like the foam situation is, is going to work out much quicker than, than unfortunately our gear because we don't use foam very often. <laughs> we wear our gear every day. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you brought up a very important consideration, and that is multiple pathways by which people are exposed and, and those who have highest levels of exposure, such as firefighters, are the ones who we depend on to keep us safe. I mean, I'm thinking about what's going on in the western part of the country right now with, with all the wildfires. Those guys are crazy. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know what's ironic is when you talk to them and you, you, you know, and I say, I'm glad I don't have to, you know, deal with that. And they're like, well, we'd rather deal with this than Ohio weather in the winter and deal with snow yeah. and ice. Like it doesn't matter where you're at. There's like, they're like, well, I'd rather deal with this than that. But yeah, no, thanks. Those guys are amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think anybody who engages in work like that to selflessly keep people safe is pretty amazing. You know, not to not to not to beat the, you know, kumbaya drum too much, but what would we do without first responders, especially during a pandemic and during climate change events that lead to huge fires? That's true. Well, I know I've taken you already for way too much time. Um, I Again, I appreciate everything that you're doing just really for the world. This isn't just about firefighters. This is such a big picture. Everybody, doesn't matter where you're at. I mean, your, your babies are born with the stuff, you know, in their blood. So uh, the work that you're doing is, it may not end it, but it's at least starting um, eventually getting rid of this stuff. Well, understanding is that first step towards action, right? Yes. So you are Dr. Jamie DeWitt. I am Jim Bernica, and we're out of time. So all you listeners out there, take care. 